if you were to be told that you had one week left to live, how would you choose to live that week? I mean, that might sound cliche to you, but I really want you to think about it, okay? How would you live if you were told you had one week left to live? I I bet it would really affect our lives, wouldn't it? The way that you would choose to spend your time, the way, what activity you'd choose to do in that week. I know it would for me. I have a feeling most of us would probably be quitting our jobs, quitting school, clearing our schedule, and doing whatever we most want to do with whomever we most love, right? It's probably what we'd all be doing. Forget meaningless meetings, forget annoying assignments, forget petty projects around the house. I mean, money and jobs and studying and sleep and exercise and eating, all these things wouldn't be nearly as important anymore, would they? Your time would immediately become your most precious commodity. And people would most likely become your highest and most important priority, at least for most of us. I mean, maybe some of us would want to travel or or see sights or check things off our bucket list. But most of us probably would want to spend almost every waking moment with our loved ones. And with our spouses or significant others, with our children, grandchildren, grandparents, parents, or, or nieces or nephews, uncles, whatever, your loved ones, your friends. We'd want to spend time with them, to, to hang out with them, to play with them, to talk with them, to love them. Or, on the other hand, maybe some of us would become preoccupied with ministry or God's work. If we had one week left to live, we think, okay, I want to do a couple more things for God or his kingdom before I die. Maybe some of us would go on a spree of spreading the gospel everywhere we could. I'll tell you this, though. If we knew that we had a week left to live, I guarantee that it would reveal the things that are most important in your lives. At least maybe what should be most important to you. Our highest priorities. It would show what things or what people mean the most to you in your life. By how you chose to spend your time. Well, I think that we can see much of the same when it comes to Jesus' final week on earth before he died. Jesus knew that he had a very limited amount of time left on earth. And so what he did with his time, especially in this season, should be very revealing to us. What was most important to Jesus? What were his priorities? And as his followers, shouldn't his most passionate and highest priorities be the same as ours? Let's turn together to God's Word, to Luke chapter 19. So if you have a Bible, take it and turn to Luke 19. We'll be at the very end of the chapter, starting in verse 45. If you're using a pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 879. 879, it's Luke 19, verse 45. This is another short passage from the life story of Jesus, but one that still has massive implications for our lives today. So let's pray together. Pray that that we would see these implications, see these truths, and that we'd be changed by them, like we sang in the song. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray as we look into your words today that you truly would speak to us. 
through your Holy Spirit, speak to us your truths. Help us grow. Help us to repent. Help us to worship. God, I pray that you would change our lives through your word once again today, because these words have power and they have life in them. God, we thank you for the blessing of your word. We pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the last couple passages, if you've been with us, have described Jesus' approach and entrance to the city of Jerusalem. Okay, so he's finally at Jerusalem, and we see in the last few passages he rode up on a donkey's colt and was praised and hailed as a king. And then as he got close to Jerusalem and looked up, saw the city, all of a sudden he began to weep for the city. And Jesus was totally torn up by, because so many people that he loved in the city of Jerusalem were rejecting him as Messiah. And like last week's passage, today's passage is quite emotionally charged, okay? With a huge swing of emotions again. But it's going to be a very different emotion that Jesus displays in this one. Not sadness, but anger. It's actually one of the more startling images of Jesus that we see in the Bible, okay? This may have been, this may have happened on the same day as the previous stories, or maybe the following day, but from all appearances... As soon as Jesus entered Jerusalem, his first stop was at the temple. Okay? The same place that he had been dedicated as a baby at, at 8 years old. Same place that at 12 years old his parents lost him and were looking for him. And, and he told them, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I'm supposed to be in my father's house? Okay? It, it shouldn't surprise us now that he's still to be in his father's house. The temple was destination number one for Jesus. And the temple, in many ways, was the heart of the Jewish nation, especially religiously. And the temple, as it would have been on the day that Jesus entered it here, was magnificent, breathtaking. King Herod had massively renovated the place. He had torn the whole thing apart and rebuilt it. The whole temple complex was redone. We'll show a picture. This is a model of what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. And not to scale, obviously, but this building was huge, this complex. That building in the middle there was actually 15 stories tall. Okay, does that give you a little bit of a picture how massive this temple was? Um, it could accommodate over 100,000 worshipers at one time. That's like a massive football stadium right there. It was also a very beautiful complex of buildings. White marble, gold everywhere. You looked shining, sparkling. The temple was really the crowning jewel of Jerusalem. Really of the whole nation of Israel. But more than its physical beauty, the temple had enormous spiritual significance. It was where Jews pilgrimaged every year at the Passover or for other feasts. It was where the priests, even the high priest, lived and ministered to people. It was where all the multitude of sacrifices took place. So, think about that. That means this is where people imagine their sin being covered. 
and being freed from their sin. Massive spiritual significance. But more than anything, the temple was believed to be the dwelling place of God on earth. Okay, so this is why Jesus called it my father's house. It was God's house and home. Not that, that God could be contained to one building. Not at all. Okay? But God's presence dwelt at the temple in a special and unique way. But despite the beauty, the magnificence, the spiritual significance, it probably had nostalgia too. Despite all that, when, what Jesus saw as he entered the temple courts on this day enraged him. And I'll try to help you imagine the scene before we read this, okay? Jesus had just entered the temple area into the courtyard known as the Court of Gentiles. That would be oh, oh, the picture. Let's put the picture back up for a sec. Okay, that's the big court on the outside. Okay, the massive big area. That's the Court of the Gentiles. It's called that because this is as far in as the Gentiles or the non-Jews were allowed to go. Okay, that's where they could gather and worship. And this largest courtyard of the temple served many purposes. Its primary purpose was just that. It was the place for Gentiles to gather to worship God if they wished to. But the courtyard also served other purposes. It served as a meeting place for people to meet up. If they Say you were talking to your relative across Israel and you're meeting up in Jerusalem. You say, let's meet in the court of Gentiles together. Or it also served as a place that many religious leaders would sit around and teach people. They gather their flocks and they teach them. And it served, unfortunately, as a marketplace. See, people traveling to Jerusalem, to the temple, to, to make sacrifices, we, we know they needed to have animals to sacrifice. This was the law. They had to have a lamb or a goat or a dove or a cow or something. Usually a lamb to sacrifice. And instead of traveling really long distances on these journeys with their animals in tow... Usually what people would do, they'd go to Jerusalem and they say, okay, I'm just going to purchase an animal when I get there. Okay, it's a lot easier. It'd save the hassle of carting this animal all over the place. So we're going to get there. We're going to buy an animal when we, when we get to the temple. Nothing was wrong with that practice, by the way. Okay? So this need, naturally, some entrepreneurial folk decided to sell livestock to these pilgrims. So they set up booths and tables outside the temple in order to work their businesses. They saw the demand, and so they were providing the supply. Again, nothing was wrong with that. Okay? But there were two main issues with how the practice had evolved in Jesus' day. One was the marketplace had moved inside of the temple and moved inside the courts where people were supposed to be praying and worshiping, not buying and selling. It's believed that the priests and other leaders at the temple even made a profit off of having them in this location. And two, the sellers had largely grown corrupt over the years. It was ripe for corruption. And so they would gouge prices and they rip people off. And, and people needed the animals after all. And so they had to pay whatever they had to pay. So it would have been like prices at a touristy gift shop or an airport or a, a sports arena or a theater, right? If people need to buy what you're selling, you can afford to hike the prices however high you want. And at the temple, 
poor people were especially vulnerable to this extortionist. How would you feel if we here at Calvary made a requirement to bring your Bible to church with you every week? Okay? And you and one day when you showed up here, someone had set up a stand of Bibles just inside the foyer area there. Okay? And when you came in, they asked, Hey, you got your Bible? I mean, you need a Bible. You, got, you can't go in there without a Bible. And you say, well, no, I, I forgot my Bible today, or I don't have it, or maybe I don't own a Bible. So they respond, well, you're in luck. I can sell you one right now. I see this nice stand. Here, look at this one. I'll give you a good deal. $300. <laughs> you can have a Bible. How do you feel about that? Right? It's like they're saying, sorry, you can't worship God unless you buy what I'm giving you here. That would have been similar to what was going on inside the temple courts in Jesus' day. Taking advantage of people and their needs. And that's not even mentioning the temple tax that was collected from all worshipers that came in. To, to top it off, as we know... The biggest feast and holiday of the Jewish year was in a couple days, the Passover. Okay? So this was peak pilgrimage season. This was peak sacrifice season. Josephus, the historian, says that most Passover weeks, 255,000 lambs were bought, sold, and sacrificed every Passover. That's a lot of lambs. So, this was like December 23rd or 24th at the mall. Crowded and crazy. Think of like a stock market floor, you know, the, the hecticness of a stock market. Then add livestock. <laughs> Can you imagine the tumultuous scene as Jesus entered the temple courts? Jam-packed with people, noisy, smelly, hectic, confusing, chaotic. Teachers, priests, pilgrims, young and old, merchants, shoppers, sheep, goats, cows, and doves. It would have been like a mall, a zoo, a bank, and a church all rolled into one. And when Jesus saw the chaos and the corruption, he lost it. Let's finally read together. Starting in verse 45, it says this, And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, Luke's description here is a bit more subdued than the other gospel accounts of this event. Other accounts tell us that he was throwing chairs, overturning tables, even made use of a whip. Okay? But Luke's picture, you still see the, it's still quite startling, and you still easily see Jesus' passion, right? In these verses, Jesus meant business when he got into the temple. He was there to clean house, essentially. Now, you've probably all heard this passage or this story as support for there being a good type of anger. Right? We've all heard that. 
Okay? That sometimes anger is justified, or that there's a, a holy or righteous form of anger. Can this be implied from this passage? Yeah, I think probably so. You can, you can probably get there. If God can rightfully become angry, then there has to be some righteous form of anger, right? Because we know God can do no sin. So there has to be that. Although I would guesstimate that about 99.9% of all our anger is not righteous anger. Okay? Jesus certainly displays a justified and holy, a controlled righteous anger here in this passage. However, contrary to what you might expect, this is totally not the point of this passage. Okay, this is not what Luke is trying to explain to us. Yes, Jesus got angry, but the point of the passage is much deeper than that. The point of the story is, again, to show us Jesus again. What does this story tell us about Jesus, about our Savior? Last week, I said, as we looked at Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, I said that you can tell a lot about a person by what makes them cry. Well, I think you can also say that you can tell a lot about a person by what makes them angry. What gets them worked up? You can tell if if someone is patient or impatient. If they're self-controlled or uncontrolled. You can tell if if someone is stressed or tired or hurt because they often lash out in those times. You can tell what upsets people most, what things are most significant to them. You can tell how valuable maybe justice or fairness is to someone or how selfish or selfless someone is. You can often tell what someone's idols are by what makes them angry. Hit a nerve. The list can go on. You can tell a lot about a person by what makes them angry. So, we have to ask, what made Jesus angry? What was Jesus so upset about? These are key questions to ask because they will reveal to us again some of God's heart. What was Jesus most passionate about? What did he most value? What does God value? Okay. Remember, Jesus specifically chose to spend some of his final time on earth doing this. Here's what I think we'll find in this passage. I don't think Jesus cared as much about the animals or the busyness or the dirtiness or even the noisiness when he walked in. Of course he cared about the cheating and injustice that was going on. And of course he cared about what was essentially the commercialization of religion. And he most definitely cared about the concerns and needs of the poor. But all of those cares would have only been surface issues of a far greater problem. Here's how, at the heart, I believe Jesus was most concerned about the corruption and distortion of the worship of God. Corruption and distortion of the worship of God. Here's how I put this principle. First point in your notes. Jesus is passionate about the purity of worship and prayer. Okay, Jesus is desperately and forcefully passionate about the purity of worship and prayer. How do I know that this is what got him so riled up? Primarily by what he said or likely yelled 
if you're imagining this scene. And he probably did not say this very nicely. Okay? As he entered the temple, he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Can you feel Jesus' passion in that statement? My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He was indignant and, and heartbroken and furious. You really see a zealousness about the worship of God here. Notice he, what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, get the animals out of here. He doesn't say, everybody shut up. He doesn't say, stop buying things. He was most upset that the temple, designed as a house of prayer and worship, was being used for completely different purposes, corrupt purposes. Have you ever seen a library being used for a rowdy birthday party? Or maybe a hospital being used for an accounting office? Kindergarten schoolyard for a military training ground. No, no. It just doesn't happen, right? When a building is designed for a specific purpose, it's bizarre to see it being used for some other purpose. But in the case of the temple, it wasn't it was even worse than that. It was it wasn't just bizarre, it was wrong. The temple was meant to be holy, set apart for God a witness to the world, but instead it had become a criminal's hangout. Corrupt and morally evil. It was meant to be a place where anyone could come and worship God and pray to God. But instead it had become a bustling marketplace filled with injustice and chaos. You know how in a a movie or a TV show when a gang of crooks or bad guys are tracked down by the good guys, they usually find them in some location that's like dimly lit and smoke-filled, seedy, noisy. You know what I mean? It was like Jesus was finding this kind of criminal's haunt, except in the worst place possible. Criminals had set up camp in God's holy temple. Sacrilege. My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. It is written. This is actually a combination of two different quotations from Old Testament prophets. The first one is from Isaiah 56, 6-7, which says this, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, so speaking of the Gentiles, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. We've actually got a quilt at the back of the sanctuary with part of that verse on it. But this was the temple in its ideal state. Okay? Its perfect state, a place of holiness and joy and acceptance. Above all, it was a place for people to come together from everywhere to honor and worship God. The second quotation 
is not nearly so bright. It's from Jeremiah 7.11, where the Lord told Jeremiah to prophesy against the pervasive wickedness in the land. And Jeremiah asked, will you really steal and murder and lie and commit adultery and worship idols and then dare to come to God's house and worship in God's house like hypocrites? Basically what he's prophesying to people, really harsh. And then comes verse 11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. It's really, it's a pronouncement of judgment on people's false worship. And these two passages couldn't be more opposite. Right? Positive and negative. Both talk about the temple. But one is pure light and joy and holiness. And the other one is sin and sadness and judgment. And Daryl Bach says that as Jesus comes along, unfortunately the negative image is the reality. The nation has turned the temple into exactly the opposite of what it was designed to be. In the very presence of God, as it prepares to worship, the nation dishonors its God. Starting to understand why Jesus got so upset. Can you imagine what he was thinking? As he yelled at the merchants and flipped their tables and scattered the animals. Nothing in the entire universe is more important than the glory and worship of God. Nothing. This is why God brought the world into being, into existence, to display his worth. This is why we were created. Every single one of us. This is why we were created. To bring glory to God. To worship God. To love God. God earnestly desires us, as his beloved creation, to relationally connect with him in this way. To commune with him. To walk with him. To to talk with him. To pray to him. And this is the message of the entire Bible. God is working to save and redeem people in order for us to love him and worship him. That's the message of the entire Bible. But then we tend to trivialize worship and prayer. We don't see their significance. We do them only whenever we really feel like it. Whenever we have extra time. We sing a few songs on Sunday, if you sing. Or we say short prayer before meals or beds. See how we trivialize that? No, this is what we were created to do. This is the heart of existence on earth. This is the heart of your existence. This is why you were created. God deserves far more than an hour and a half every week or a few minutes daily. Our entire lives should be consumed with zealousness for God's glory. 
prayer is no meaningless, trivial, or inconsequential priority. It should be the priority. Okay? And what could be ever more important than communing and communicating with the God of the universe? Okay? Nothing should be more valuable. Nothing should be more precious to us. What a blessing. And worship. It shouldn't just take place on Sunday mornings. It should take place every hour of every day. See God's work around you. See his creation. See how he's working in your life. Praise him for it. Thank him. Sing to him. Talk about him. We, shouldn't, we should worship God with our time, with our energy, with our resources, with our money. Everything we have can go to worship God in some way. Now, some of you maybe think as we read this passage just don't see the connection here. You think, well, as Christians, we don't have a temple like the Jews did. Right? So Jesus cleansing the temple just doesn't mean as much to us today. Or does it? Well, if you didn't know, we actually do have a temple in a couple different ways. Let me, let me explain. Neither of which, by the way, are a church building. Okay, this building is not a temple. Do not start calling it a temple. It's not a temple. Okay? But in Ephesians 2, Paul tells us that the church, the people of the church, make up a temple together. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22 says this, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, not talking about a building, talking about people, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we, as a church, are a temple, a dwelling place for God. This means, think about what this implies for us as a church. The implications are huge. This means that we've been set apart as a church, as holy in God's sight. Not because of what we've done, because of what Christ has done for us. We are set apart as holy in God's sight. This means that we are formed and designed for the worship of God. It's our purpose. And this means that every time we gather and form the church, we are intended to be a house of prayer. The locations we gather aren't temples. But any of our gatherings are temples. Worship services, small groups, Sunday school classes, prayer meetings, youth groups, all temples. That adds some gravity to everything we do as a church, doesn't it? Secondly, that's one aspect how we have a temple. Secondly, on a more personal level, we as believers have a temple everywhere we go. 
That's because 1 Corinthians 3.16 says bluntly, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Later, 1 Corinthians 6 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is incredible. This means that if you have believed in Jesus as your Savior, the Holy Spirit has made his home inside of you, which means you are a temple. Your physical body is a dwelling place for Almighty God. The implications of that can be heavy. This means that you, if you have believed in Christ, are set apart as holy to God. This means that you are formed and designed for the worship of God. And this means that your body is to be a house of prayer. Isn't that amazing? Oh, I pray that Jesus wouldn't look at us and want to run rampage through our church or through our bodies. It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And we have to ask ourselves, have we corrupted the pure worship of God amongst ourselves? In ourselves? Do we instead worship the idols of success or stuff or self? Have we brought foreign idols into the temple of the living God? Things that he will have to drive out. Has our church become distracted from the end of glorifying God in everything we do? I pray that never is the case. Have we allowed our bodies to be more about sports or sex or sleep or whatever the case may be than about our God. Let me just briefly share with you how God used this passage to convict me this week. I've said this before, but when it comes to preaching, the preacher should be the first hearer of the sermon. Because I'm not giving the message. God is giving the message through his word. And so something God often convicts me before I bring the message about something that's in my life that needs to be made right. And so how this passage applies to you may look similar or very different than it did for me. But God moved me a while back to ensure that I spent the first moments of my day with him. And this, like reading the scriptures, meditating on them, having a time of focused prayer. This is not a rule for Christians, okay, but it is a privilege for us. It's a blessing that we can do this. And it was just a way that I decided that I want to express, God, I want you to be first. 
Okay? I want you to be first in my time. I want you to be first in my priority. Before exercise or before eating or before checking my email, whatever it is, I want you to be first. Now, of course, I haven't been perfect at that. No one ever is. And we shouldn't expect to be. But by God's grace, I had a good habit going for a while. Now, over the past month or so, a number of different things have begun to corrupt this time, so to speak. Okay. Most of them, I was able to trace back to staying up really late the night before. Right? It's, I'd watched baseball games or TV shows or I'd read really good books, just finished a massive one, or I'd surfed the web or, or done other things. But every time in the morning then when I woke up, I was exhausted. Didn't want to get out of bed. Couldn't get out of bed. And so often, things that fell by the wayside, my time with the Lord was one of them. Most of these things are relatively harmless activities. But do you notice the priority shift? I'd allowed a number of secondary passions in my life to supplant Jesus. So subconsciously, I wasn't doing it out of rebellion, but subconsciously I valued shows or sports or sleep more than I valued my Savior. And my priority was not prayer. My priority was not worship. It was something else. And as I read this passage and studied this week, I felt the Holy Spirit convict me. Matt, your body is my temple, but you're neglecting me. And so I had to reshuffle some priorities this week. It, it wasn't crazy difficult. I mean, it primarily meant just getting to bed earlier. Maybe setting an alarm. But sometimes the application of something like this can be that easy. Sometimes it needs to be drastic, radical. But it is all worth it if God receives the worship that he is due it's all worth it. You'll have to think about how this applies in your life as a temple of God, or in our church's life, as a temple of God. Now, this passage isn't overly descriptive of everything Jesus did in the temple on that day. I mean, we have questions, right? Was this startling spectacle over in minutes? Or did Jesus end up doing this for hours? Or what was the disciples' responses? I'm sure they were pretty stunned by it, shocked, confused. And then we think, well, how did Jesus even get away with this? And wouldn't there have been someone to try to stop him? Was it just a sign of respect for him that kept people away? Or was he simply so agitated and impassioned that everyone just stayed clear of him? Let him do his thing. I don't know. We don't know the answers to these questions. But we do know that Jesus eventually calmed down and moved on. And as he does, in the final verses of chapter 19, we're going to see one other obvious priority for Jesus become clear. And not only was he passionate about the purity of worship and prayer, but also Jesus is passionate about the power of transformative teaching. Okay? Jesus was and is 
passionate about the power of transformative, life-changing teaching. Let's look at how we see this here. Starting in verse 47, it just says, right after he cleared the temple, and and Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. So you see the picture here? Given a picture of Jesus teaching faithfully every day in the temple. Meanwhile, leaders are plotting against him and listeners are fascinated by him. Obviously, it's a much calmer Jesus than we just saw. But, as Philip Ryken points out, Jesus didn't only clean house, he claimed the house as a temple. Or, he claimed the house as a pulpit, sorry. I like that. Right? He cleaned house, and he claimed a pulpit. That's what he was doing. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what he was teaching about here, but he is going to, over the next couple chapters, and we're going to see that over the next few weeks. But think about this, okay? He was teaching daily in the temple. People were hanging on his words. How much time Jesus spent in his life, in his ministry, teaching people. It's teaching. It fills our Gospels. All the way leading up to these final days in Jerusalem. That tells us something about the priority in his life, doesn't it? Okay? He could have done many different things in this time, but he chose to teach his followers day after day, every day, all the way till the end of his life. He chose to teach. Life-changing teaching was a top priority for him. And why? Well, that, I think, goes back to what we saw last week. Jesus wanted people to know him. He wanted them to know him, to follow and love and obey him. And that was the best way to teach them how to do that. So he taught faithfully, despite many people's plots against him. We saw that verse 47. He's teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. That's no surprise there. Jesus was a threat to the systems they'd established. His teachings often opposed them and their teachings or led people away from them. And he was a, he was a threat to their livelihood, to their reputations. And now, he was invading their turf. They had to stop him. Had to put a stop to his teachings before they spread any further. So, it says that they sought to destroy him. Destroy is such a strong word. But it's very appropriate here. Because they were trying to do nothing less than kill Jesus. That was their goal. And soon enough, they would find a way to destroy Jesus. As we know, later that very week, they'd bribe one of Jesus' disciples to betray him. And they would arrest him, and Jesus would be tried, and condemned, and executed. The religious leaders would succeed. In their plots. Or at least they thought. See, while they were celebrating their victory over this zealous rabbi, this troublemaker, that rabbi was in fact winning the victory over sin and death as he rose from the grave. 
and over the years following, as you proceed through Scripture, you see the church and faith in Jesus, this teacher, exploded all over the globe. Couldn't be stopped. His teachings would be spread everywhere. And his teachings keep changing lives to this very day. But when the leaders thought they succeeded, they actually failed. Has your life been transformed by Jesus' teaching? Has your life been transformed by Jesus? If not, it needs to be. Because without Jesus, we are stuck in our sins and destined to die for them. But as he stands in victory, sin's curse is lost. There's a grip on me. And it can for you as well. Jesus can transform your life to the glory of God. Would like to do this. I'd love to speak with you today. Please come see me after service. There's nothing is more important than the glory and the worship of God in the entire universe, and nothing is more important than you getting right with Him so your life can bring glory to Him. So the leaders here wanted to destroy Jesus, but it, Luke tells us that they had a problem. That was his popularity. Since the chief priests and the scribes, principal men of the people, were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Hanging on his words. People were fixated, fascinated, enthralled. They were in awe of every word that Jesus spoke. No one ever spoke like this before, with authority. In the full truth, in complete love. His words were gripping, they were powerful, and they were life-changing. Now, do you realize what a blessing it is, an incredible blessing, that we still have many of Jesus' words today? Do you realize what a blessing that is? Okay? No, we don't have audio files or video files from this being, but we have his words. And through the Holy Spirit, these words still have transformative power today. Ladies and gentlemen, these, these are the words of God. These are the words of life. We need to be hanging on these words captivated by them, enthralled by them. Far too often we are bored or uninterested or merely amused by them. But every time we read them, every time we study them, every time we meditate on them, every time we memorize them, every time we hear them read or taught or preached, we should be amazed that we can hear the very words of God to man. And they should enrapture our hearts and our minds, and they should change our lives. 
This is why, as a church, we must take the commands to teach and preach the Word of God very seriously. This is why, if you're gifted as a teacher or a preacher, you must exercise your gifts. This is one reason that all of us should be engrossed in the call to spread the gospel. We have been entrusted with the words of life, and people need to hear them. This is why I hope you are committed to faithfully hearing from God's word yourself, through your own study of it, and through it, hearing it taught or preached. I'm not asking you today okay, to be more fascinated or pay more attention to me. It's not what I'm doing. But I am asking that you pay more attention to these words. Receive God's words, humbly, willingly. Obey them. Let them change your life. this, This passage points to two possible responses for us as we hear his words again today. We'll either respond like the religious leaders or we'll respond like the crowd on that day. We will either feel threatened by him, or we will feel enthralled by him. Ultimately, as Tim Keller says, either you'll have to kill him, or you'll have to crown him. The one thing you can't do is just say, what an interesting guy. Either you have to kill him or you'll have to crown him. But one thing you can't do is just say, what an interesting guy. So which will it be? Will you kill him or will you crown him? There is no in-between. May we hang on his words. May we persevere in prayer. May our lives bring glory to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, purify our worship. May we not be distracted by so many things around us. May we not be captivated by so many idols that we build or raise up in our lives. May we clear our lives of anything that is not of you. Please, Spirit, do this, because you know that we don't have the power to do it on our own. Cleanse us and purify us. Change our motives. Help our lives to be filled with worship and prayer and hearing from you. Pray this in the name of Jesus.